Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Alessa Pindak, the Chief Content Officer here at MindBodyGreen, and I'm excited to introduce Justin Gold, the man behind an all-time favorite snack around the MindBodyGreen office, Justin's Nut Butters. In 2016, it was acquired for a cool $286 million, but did you know that the brand comes from very humble beginnings? The company kicked off when Gold, a longtime vegetarian and cyclist, began selling his homemade nut butter in farmer's markets around Colorado in 2004. The name Justin's is actually a nod to those days when he'd label his jars to ward off his hungry roommates. In this episode, we trace the evolution of one of the most recognized brands in wellness and learn from the health nut who brought it all to life. Justin, thank you so much for being here. We're so happy to have you. Ow! (laughs) All right, so let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about you growing up in Western Pennsylvania and your grandfather and what, how you got started in this whole business. Yeah, so gosh, where do I start? So I grew up in a small kind of mining, logging community in Western PA, and it was very rural. So we were outside the entire time and we're always just playing and, you know, in nature camps and running around and building forts and, you know, kind of told don't come home till the sun setting kind of, Sounds you know, kind of environment. And, uh, and so I, I just early on had this really magical appreciation of the natural outdoors, right? Just loved it. And so then when I, um, when I, you know, I went to, to high school and then, you know, Western PA and then college, I went in central Pennsylvania, mostly because of financial aid and state tuition. And as I was going through college, it just kind of became natural to uh, pursue something around environmental policy. And the whole idea was I didn't know what I wanted to do or how I wanted to do it, but I kind of felt like with well, a policy degree, I could maybe go to law school and then how to get a degree in environmental law was just kind of like a, a new emerging type of uh skill set because I thought it'd be really neat to be able I could have the greatest impact by um, protecting things through legislation that I thought was really near and dear to me. But meanwhile, in in the background, my mom's father started a natural food store in western Pennsylvania, you know, way before natural food was cool. We're talking like in the 60s. And um, so started this natural food store and it mostly is a vitamin shop with some natural food products and it kind of morphed into a store. So I grew up as a little kid, you know, eating cashew butter and, you know, tiger milk bars. You remember those? Yeah. Little, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and nature's nectar had these like peanut butter cups or these single cups. And I think it was a carob peanut butter cup. And I just grew up eating those things. So to me, yeah. it was just... You know, seeing those products was just a part of my identity, and and my dad was a dentist, but he was really brilliant at marketing himself and mm-hmm. promoting his business. So he's more of an entrepreneur than a dentist, and and my mom had a catering company. So I just grew up in this very, you know, environment, very uh, hands-on nature with some entrepreneurial, some natural foods. All these things were kind of mixed into my life, but yet I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. And so I'm in college, I'm preparing for the LSAT, studying in, in, in environmental policy. And my senior year, just for fun, I decide to intern at a local nonprofit environmental law firm in Harrisburg. And I'm like, you know, 
you know, hey, I already know I want to do this, but I might as well intern somewhere just for fun and to start <laughs> building some relationships and contacts. And I started working for the law firm. And within like two months of working there, I <laughs> I dropped out of my LSAT course. I was completely disillusioned with law because it was really all about conflict. Mm. And it was either you're resolving conflict or you're creating conflict. And the and just really to get your mission and your, and your vision across. And, and I didn't want to... That's not how I wanted to spend my time. And I dropped out of the LSAT course, dropped out of everything, finished with a degree in environmental policy, and then ended up just uh, moving around. And I was in the Bay Area for about a year. And then in 2001, I ended up in Boulder, Colorado. And mostly because, you know, I had to get out of of Pennsylvania. You know, I just had to get out. And two, I wanted to live somewhere that was near the mountains or in the mountains, but also had a university uh, locally or nearby, so that way I could get residency and maybe go back to school to pursue something that I was really passionate about. So what were you doing there? What did you land in Boulder and start doing right away? <laughs> I waited tables. <laughs> As it, you do. You know, and it's, you know, it's I waited tables in college. And then when I moved to California, I waited tables. And then when I was got to Boulder, I waited tables. And it was so crazy. I'll never forget you know, I had two resumes, right? And I'm sure everyone out of college maybe has two. And I had a, I had a professional resume, which was, you know, I went to co- this is the college I went to. This is what I study. This is where I interned. This is where I volunteered. This type of job that I want. And then I had a service resume, which was I worked food service at college. I worked at these restaurants, and so, so it was just an easy thing to do. And plus, what I love about restaurants, it really like gave me the confidence to read people. To speak, you know, under um, stressful and even exciting, you know, circumstances, to um, to own like kind of what you're doing and to make mistakes and to own the mistakes, and uh, and then like at least I I knew that no matter what I would eat, <laughs> you know, and then you make friends. And the best part about working restaurants, especially in Boulder, Colorado, is you mostly work weekends, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll have like Tuesday, Wednesday off. And you can go play and there's like there's no lines or you know crowds and that was pretty awesome it's that, a pretty good playground too. that i miss yeah. yeah and eating for free was kind of fun but in the meantime you were also creating some nut butters yeah so th- kind of what happened was i almost immediately as soon as i moved to boulder i i'm vegetarian and i was eating a lot of peanut butter and almond butter have you always been protein. vegetarian no you know i grew up um eating everything you know and then in college, and this is totally classic, right? So you're in an environmental studies class, and then you're like, okay, well, today we're going to visit a you know slaughterhouse, and we're going to see how animals are slaughtered and brought to market through production. And everyone's like, oh, this is great. You know, last week we visited a landfill, and the week before we went to a dairy farm, and next week we're going to go to you know a hazardous waste facility. This is fantastic. And so we visit this slaughterhouse, and then you know, then you. You know, it's not really, you can watch a video, you know, mm-hmm. and you can hear it and you can see it. But when you feel it and you feel the energy in the room, it was dramatic, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd say for the first week, the entire class was vegetarian, right? And then like after the next week, people start to fall off. They forget. It's probably the best thing about humans is kind of like <laughs> we forget about things. And then, and then for me, what happened was I stopped eating meat for about a week and then I didn't miss it. Right. And then and then my body felt better and everything just felt just felt better. I felt stronger and I was sleeping better. And I was like, you know what, maybe I'll just see how long this goes or stop eating meat. And I didn't didn't crave it where a lot of other people were craving meat and they really needed it. And I just wasn't. And so I just never really looked back. 
and you could say it started with you know with, with the ethical treatment of animals but it really for me was just about what my body needed mm-hmm. and so i do have a philosophy right animals that are hunted and not slaughtered because i do think that by nature we are omnivores and we should be eating meat i just think that there's a probably a better way to do it and so we digress and so bringing you back so here i am vegetarian eating all these nut butters mostly because peanut butter is really a cheap source of protein mm-hmm. right you can get all your protein it clearly it's not balanced with amino acids and everything but you can get as much protein as you can with peanut butter it's super cheap i was making my own if you ever looked at a jar of natural peanut butter it's one ingredient right mm-hmm. it's peanuts and if you get lucky sometimes they have a second type of peanut butter called crunchy right <laughs> right this Only is silly varieties. we're talking right. about peanut butter right <laughs> and so I, I was just really like curious why is it that there's only two types of peanut butter yet there's like a whole aisle of you know jams and jellies or there's like different mayonnaises and mustards and aiolis and ketchups and and it just didn't make any sense and so i started you know like well, how hard can it be to make peanut butter like you can <laughs> grind your own like you said so i'm like all right well how hard can this be so i get a food processor that acts kind of like a grinder and I'm adding all these secondary ingredients anything from you know fresh bananas you got to crack crack the coat on bananas right so fresh <laughs> bananas to dried bananas to banana powder to banana flavor to banana syrup to chocolate to vanilla to cinnamon to cayenne pepper to coconut to almonds to cashews just trying it out and then after a while you start to realize that powders work better than liquids cuz oil and water don't mix very well and some powders work and some don't and you're just trying all these things and as I'm making it all I'm keeping a food journal and I'm keeping down all the uh, the recipes that I'm making and I'm putting so them peanut in peanut butter banana bad peanut butter banana powder good so peanut butter banana fresh banana tastes amazing the moment you make it mm-hmm. and then the next day it tastes awful <laughs> because it just kind of like you know it turns black and mushy right and then you try peanut butter like a like you can do like a freeze dried banana and turn it into a powder and add that but it doesn't taste the same as a real banana because a lot of the flavor in the banana is in the water content of the banana, huh. the moisture of it. And when you take all that moisture out and you try to, to taste a dried banana, you're like, I kind of taste like banana. But then you add a lot more dry banana to it. Now it's just like this dry, crum- crumbly mess. You're like, oh, let's add some banana flavor to it. And you're like, that doesn't taste like real banana. And you're like, you know what? Some things are just left you know, as, <laughs> as the, the true, as nature intended, so to right. speak. Versus trying to mimic it or recreate it. Slices of banana on your peanut butter toast. Yeah, you just got to go legit and go <laughs> real. And then so I had all these these jars and I was living with a bunch of roommates and I was in Gun Barrel, which is a suburb of Boulder, basically. Mm-hmm. And I'm living with all these roommates and I had all these cupboards and they all kind of had numbers on them or little recipes on them. Some were in the fridge, some were in the cupboard. <laughs> and they started just taking them and eating them, right? Which with roommates is totally normal, except for me, these were like experiments. And I don't know why I was doing it. Maybe... I was just super bored, didn't have a girlfriend, didn't have a dog, you know, just was really curious about it. And my roommate started taking them and eating them, and I started to write Justin's on all the jars, right? And and literally, that's they started calling it Justin's, my roommates. And then at some point, someone's like, hey, have you ever thought about turning this into a business? And I really had had thought about it, but not very deeply, right? I didn't have a food food degree. I didn't know anything about nutrition. I didn't know anything about business or marketing or sales or food production. And so when someone mentioned it, they said these are really awesome. What I did know how to do was use a library, right? And so I felt I felt really confident because I was right out of college. 
and I, I felt really comfortable in libraries in CU, Colorado University has a business school there with um, that anyone has access to as long as, as, long as you have a, a driver's license, you can go in and take books out. So I, so I started thinking to myself, well, maybe I just need a book on how to write a business plan and I'll just research it. So I go to the CU Business School's library and they have a huge reference section on business plans and I start researching how to start a business. And for me, it was like this academic exercise, which when you're, when you're right out of college and you miss it, you miss academia, I was really just craving this opportunity to kind of do work. And so I'm writing this business plan and I never for, I'll never forget, I'm stuck on like the first section, right? <laughs> which is what type of business entity do you want to be? You know, like, I, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't even care. Like, I just want to get going. But there's really good reasons why you need to, to declare it for, you know, tax reasons or investor reasons. And you can be a sole proprietorship or an LLC or an S-Corp or a C-Corp or maybe it's a partnership under a sole proprietorship. And I didn't know. I had no idea. And so I'm like, well, you know what, rather than get down into the weeds so soon... I wonder if there are any natural, other, any other like natural food companies in Boulder, and I can start asking them questions around what type of business entity they are, or you know, or how to you know become USDA organic, or you know where to find the health department to inspect your kitchen, or where to get jars from, or where to get labels from, or how to get labels printed, and how to get labels on jars, and all these questions that come up that maybe you just can't find in a business plan book, right? So then I started to to go to the, to the grocery food stores. And I would look at all the products that were made in Boulder, and my mind was blown, right? I had no idea that, you know, and here we are in New York City, and there's probably, you go up to the grocery food store, I don't know, 30 companies from Boulder, right? Definitely. And And big companies, right? And so before I got started, there was Celestial Seasonings, which is kind of like the one of the OG natural food mm -hmm. companies. And you have White Wave, which is the makers of Silk Soy Milk, and then Horizon Organic Dairy is also from Boulder. And you have uh, Rudy's Organic Bread, Izzy Soda. At the time, Wild Oats was one of the largest natural food retailers headquartered out of Boulder, since bought by Whole Foods. And then you had all these like even smaller companies, like some honey companies and some chip companies like Madhava Honey or Boulder Chips. And all these great people who worked in these companies who really liked to, to help the next company or the entrepreneur. And so I got a ton of help, a ton of guidance asking questions and learning how to scale and grow a food company. So at this time, were you still out of your kitchen or had you started selling in the farmer's market? Were you starting to branch out and find? Yeah. It took two years to honestly to write and research the business plan and uh, and still waiting tables. And at that time, I also got a job working at REI because it was kind of like a dream job and to live in Boulder and to work at a sporting goods store, toy store, we'll call it. <laughs> and, so, um, and so for about two years, I wrote the business plan and did research. And then I had to find a commercial kitchen to make it. And none of the commercial kitchens in Boulder were big enough to put a grinder. Like, I need a legitimate grinder. So I found a kitchen in uh, Denver, in South Denver. That was about an hour, hour 15 away from Boulder. And they had, um, it was a salsa company. And on nights and weekends, I negotiated that I could use their, basically their facility when they weren't in production, when nobody was there. They'd, so that way they'd never know I was there and I had a reduced rate and I hardwired a grinder and then I would share some of their equipment like a filler and a capper and a labeler that were all done by hand. Um, it would just it would just do one at a time and you'd put it in, it'd fill it and you'd take it out and you'd put it in and it would cap it and you'd take it out. And I had, um, honestly, I had two of my roommates helping me. 
And nights meaning night. You were working all night long. Basically. So, <laughs> you know, so basically I would, um, I'd finish a shift at REI, you know, at like five-ish and my roommate would get off of work and then we would drive to Denver you know, reverse commute with everyone else kind of, you know, leaving their job. So we'd leave one job, go to the next job, and then we'd, we'd you know, on the way we'd pick up glass before this glass place closed. <laughs> I had labels that I'd printed that I stored there. I'd have um, uh, peanuts and almonds FedExed to the apartment I was living in in these big boxes. And I'd put the 30-pound bo boxes, and the boxes would be put in the back of my forerunner. And we'd drive the forerunner, pick up the glass, go to the facility. We'd make it from say six o'clock till probably midnight. And then we'd load everything up and then we would drive back to Boulder. And then the next morning, you know, I would do one of two things. I'd either start delivering to the stores that I was in or I would be basically getting ready for like the farmer's market. And in the farmer's market I did as this, at the same time I was getting into my first few stores. And what's fascinating is it's really hard to get into your first store. You know, because you don't know the insurance requirements. You don't even know really like how it's going to do, you know, and you're kind of like hoping it's going to do well. And you honestly don't even know how much to charge for it. And so the first stores I went to were like Whole Foods. And, um, and I'll never forget, I, I walked into, into the store and I walk in and there's the grocery buyer and I find out who the grocery buyer is and I see him, he's there like, you know, scanning items. And I'm like, I'm like, hi there. Hey, um, do you have a moment? My name's, you know, my name's Justin and I started this food company. I have a few quick questions. And the guy stops what he's doing. He looks up at me and he like rolls his eyes. He's like, oh man. He's like, I got to go through this again, you know? <laughs> and, and so, you know, he, he tells me, you know, hey, you know, so, um, we don't buy direct because, you know, we have too many items to just buy direct. So please try to get in, into a distributor. And he gave me a list of a few distributors that I could call. And so then I, I leave and I call, the, you know, this distributor and they're like, hey, well, you know, you know how many? It's like, hey, so Whole Foods said that, you know, if you bring me in that, um, that they'll, you know, they might carry me. And they're like, oh, that's really great. They're like, um, we didn't get any notification from Whole Foods, you know, um, uh, who'd you talk to? And I'm like, oh, you know, this, this, the one grocery buyer at, at this one store, he kind of mentioned it. And, like, and they go, like, oh, kid, let me tell you, you know, it doesn't work like that. You know, we can't just carry one store. We have to, to deliver to a lot of stores because we're in the delivery business. So we just can't store your one item and have it go to one store. That doesn't work out economically for us. So if you can get into all the stores, then we can probably work something out. And so it's this chicken or the egg thing where mm -hmm. the distributor won't bring in without stores, but Whole Foods won't bring in without a distributor. And so it kind of left me dead in the water. So meanwhile, I kind of got into some smaller stores. I got into Great Harvest Bread Company, you know, where they have a little breadboard. I got into um, our local co-op. I got into one in Netherlands and one in Boulder. And started to learn about, you know, you know, okay, so demos are really effective and getting people to try things. And then then I went back to the Whole Foods and um, and I saw the grocery buyer and I'm like, hey, bud, um, it's me again. <laughs> and he's, he's like, oh, hey, yeah, what's up? And I'm like, so uh, I tried to get into Unify and I couldn't, I couldn't make it happen. Uh, can I please deliver it? And he's like, look, man, it's such a pain in my butt, you know, because I got to go around and anytime any of these companies are low on the shelf, I got to call them and I don't have time to do that. I'm like, all right you know, entrepreneur, overcome objections. Okay, so tell you what, uh, how about you'll never have to call me. I'll keep track, I'll monitor your store, I'll come in, I'll see what you need, and I'll have it in my car, and I'll bring it around, and I'll check it in, and I'll distribute it myself to your store, only what you need. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, but the, now the problem is, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna know it's in the back, 
you know, I'm not going to be able to find it, and it's just going to I'm going to going to waste my time trying to find it, you know, find out where it is and stock the shelves, and I don't have time to like, you know, to babysit, you know, your company. And I'm like, all right, all right. Uh, let me tell you what. Here's here's what I'll do. I'll see what you need. I'll go in the car. I'll go in my my forerunner, and I'll grab it. I'll check it in the back. And then I'll, I'll take it from the back warehouse and I'll walk it onto the floor and I'll stock my own shelves. And in fact, you'll never even have to like touch or see the product. And he's like, oh, all right. But now, now the problem is, you know, nobody knows about it. And what if it doesn't sell and it just sits here? Because, you know, I, I'm, my success is measured by the amount of dollar volume I can drive and bring into the category. And, and I don't want to like, you know, bring in something that's not going to sell because it's reflect poorly on me. And so finally it was just like, look, I'll do everything that I can to make this work. I'll see what you need. I'll, you know, write you a PO. I'll check it in the back. I'll stock my own shelves. I'll stick around. I'll do demos to make sure that people get to try it. And at the end of the day, if no one buys any of it, how about your first cases for free? And if I don't sell anything, you can just take it home, give it away. Doesn't matter. Doesn't doesn't matter to me anymore. And he was like, fine. Go, just go away, you know. So it was just, it was a really good lesson for me to to overcome objections and to be persistent, but to to be nice about it, and to, you know, because it's a human element, and uh, and to just not give up. And that's and that's exactly what I did. And I did that for about three years, doing demos, waiting tables, so working at REI. It. What happened? Was that Whole Foods the key to opening up everything else? Kind of. Kind of. And so eventually I got to the point where I delivered to enough Whole Foods and natural grocers and wild oats and co-ops around the Boulder area that Unify brought it in, you know, and it was the big distributor. And that was probably 30 stores, which took a lot of time. So now it freed up a lot of time so I could, you know, I'm still manufacturing it. Now my weekends are at the Boulder Farmer's Market, Mm -hmm. which are exhausting, but a ton of fun. And I'm still working two jobs. Are you getting a lot of good feedback from there too? That's then informing the way that you're developing the product. Yeah, the farmers market was amazing. From the farmers market, we we basically figured out how to message the product, uh, what our top flavors were, what the right price is. You know, one thing that we did, which I I learned the farmers market was, and this is really fascinating, and this is getting a little too into the details, but what I learned was so right now, you know, our products you could say are smudgy. Right, so mm-hmm. they're not smooth, they're not crunchy. <laughs> we call it our one of a kind grind. But I learned at the farmers market, and so is you know I like that texture because I think it's more flavorful. You have the nut pieces, and the nuts really contain the flavor. Now, if you have something that's only crunchy, right, and, and you're like literally a smooth connoisseur, you probably won't buy crunchy because smooth is just what you go to. It's what you buy. Now, if you're a crunchy kind of guy or girl. You know, and all they have is smooth. You'd be like, uh, okay, I usually buy crunchy, but all they have is smooth. That's <laughs> fine. I, I can live with that. And it, but So it only goes one way. So for me, it was like, all right, well, even though I may prefer crunchy, I'm, I'm alienating a whole gr- subset of smooth people, which takes up the majority of consumers. So instead, I kind of met in the middle to create this one-of-a-kind grind to kind of appease both. Because mm-hmm. if you have four flavors and they're all smooth, and someone wants crunchy, they're gonna, you know, someone's gonna want that flavor, and then that flavor, and then that flavor. Now you have eight flavors of smooth and crunchy. It's really, really hard to get that many on a, on a shelf. What was the most popular flavor then, and is it still, has that maintained? You know, I think when we first started, our most popular flavors were 
like the maple and the honey and the chocolate. And as we've grown, I'd say our most popular flavors are the classics. And I think it reflects kind of where we are as, as people, which is we want to limit the amount of extra sugar and the amount of extra you know, ingredients in our food products. And so I think people are really like, they just love the basics. You mentioned a lot of people who helped you out, and there are a lot of other businesses in Boulder at the time. Were there any one or two in particular that was um, a particular influence, or was there a mentor that you really looked to? Yeah, I had a lot. And um, one piece of advice that I got, which I thought was really kind of awesome, it was right on, was you want to have one foot firmly planted where you came from, and one foot firmly planted as to where you want to go, and, and not to forget everything in between. So what I was able to do was create basically an advisory board of people that I really cared about and who cared about me. And these were relationships that I had spent probably a year or two kind of nurturing and creating before I asked them to be officially a part of my company. And, um, and one guy was John Maggio, who started Boulder Chips, and he, was, and he is a entrepreneur whiz. He started like 10 companies. He knows exactly what it's like to be in the trenches, to grow something organically from scratch. And he was really a great representation of all the things I need to do to be successful at that moment. And as we grow, not to forget to keep doing. And then I had um, one lady and at first it was first it was Peter Burns. And then, it, then he had a conflict of interest. And, and then, it was, then it was Jane Miller. And Peter was the, at the time the CEO of Celestial Seasonings. And Jane Miller at the time was the CEO of um, Rudy's Organic Bread, and they were operators. They knew exactly what it was like to operate and to you know to day to day manage a you know ten million to two hundred million dollar company. And they gave me a lot of insights around everything, you know, about running a successful business. And then on the other end, I had Haas Sasan, and Haas was one of the one of the founders of Alfalfas. Mm-hmm. which then grew into Wild Oats. And Haas was now working as a, um, as a managing member of a um, kind of like an investment group that invests in natural food companies. And he was also on the board at Whole Foods Market. And he was my kind of what I want to be, right? Mm-hmm. He was my, I've seen it all. I've been, been there, done that. And now, you know, I'm looking down at the way the world works and, you know, and I can't, I can't give you the nitty gritty anymore because the times have changed, but I can give you the big picture. And so I had this great, well-rounded board of individuals that were advising me, which made a huge difference. That's huge. Did you find that people were willing to help you out just because of that Boulder connection? Or were there things that you tried to do in order to get them more involved in your business? How did you get them to be excited about what you're doing? You know, it's interesting. I, um, all I did to get people excited to help me was to get them to like me. <laughs> and it sounds really silly, but at the end of the day, we want to help people that we like, right? People who are good, people who are nice, people who are just good people, right? And so I was really just trying to get to know these these guys and girls and let them know, hey, this is my passion, this is my dream. You know, I, um, I want to do good in our food industry, I want to do good in our world, I want to do good in our planet, and I want to do it the right way. And then you develop this friendship, and the friendship eventually kind of nurtures itself and then becomes this kind of, you know, more of a structured relationship. And so I never went to anyone who was like, hey, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. <laughs> Please be my do, mentor. Do you have time to, you know, to, to take me on and you can be my mentor? 
you know, people are like, look, I, I don't got time for that because, you know, how do you define that relationship? Whereas if you just start it with a friendship and that friendship evolves into, you know, kind of a, a stronger friendship and over time, you know, they've been mentoring you the whole way and they don't even realize it. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and it, cause it's just because they like you and they want to hang out because you're goofy or you're smart or you're passionate or you're inspirational or whatever you know it is. But at the end of the day, you have to want people to want to help you. And for me, I think that's being kind of likable and approachable and humble and blah 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 blah. You once said that um, there were three things that define the early days for you: curiosity, frustration, and passion. What are those? Why were those three so important? Well, I can sum it up with the, the creation of the squeeze pack, right? Okay, so here we are, right? I'm four years into the business. I'm working my butt off, you know, two jobs, making jars, farmer's market, delivering, doing demos, making the product. And then at the end of the day, you know, I do my books and, you know, we're pretty much breaking even, right? And I'm not even paying myself. Right? I'm still working two other jobs. I'm paying four or five other people before I pay myself because you know I, I can't afford to pay myself. And so I'm like, all right, well, this is not a business, right? This is a nice hobby that I've created. <laughs> and I'm pretty frustrated. And I don't know what to do, but I know that if I don't do something, this is this is isn't going this isn't sustainable. So I have to either grow my distribution or I have to reduce my costs or I have to charge more. But I don't know how that's gonna play out yet. So I'm on a mountain bike ride about three or four years in, and I'm eating like an energy gel, like a goo or a power shot or something like that. And they're great products. And I was eating one, and I'm like, man, you know, this is really great, but that's not, I don't want sugar right now. I want protein. Mm-hmm. Why isn't anyone putting like peanut butter or almond butter and making these protein packs? And I was like, wow, I should do that. That's a really good idea. And I'm like, all right, all right, all right, all right. So, you know, how do you do that? I'm like, all right, well, so I get, I get, you know, finish my ride, I start talking to people, and I find out that there's there's three manufacturers who make basically squeeze packs for everyone. Ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, honey, salad dressing, hair conditioner, lotion, you know, everything. And so... No peanut butter. No peanut butter, <laughs> right? And so I call them all up, and none of them will touch peanut butter. None of them. Can you, I kind of understand why? Uh, nut allergies, cross-contamination oh, right. of nut allergies. None of them will touch peanut butter. Mm-hmm. Even after I talk to one and they're like, hey, well, you know, you know, what, what are you working on? You know, and I'm like, oh, I got a company. I want to, you know, put them in squeeze packs with my product. He's like, oh, hey, new squeeze packs, too big or too small. What you doing? What you making? We got it all. You know, like some like clever jingle. And I'm like, peanut butter. And he's like, whoa, won't touch that. You know, and you're like, what? And then so finally, like curiosity. I'm like, so, all right, all right, I got it. So. I get the why you won't help me. It's perfectly logical. So throw me a bone, right? What type of equipment are you using? Where can I get? Where can I find it? How much does it cost? Do you have any extra lying around? Is there anyone I can talk to? And then, you know, when people want to help people and they're like, you know, sorry, we can't help you. But tell you what, here's a company that we use to consult with us and talk to this guy who might be able to help you or talk to that guy. And finally, I, after, you know, a few months of just calling, I found a... a you know, a reconditioned squeeze pack machine that was in Jersey. 
that wasn't being used that was like 20 years old and you know then at that point I, I got a quote on the machine and what it would cost to get it out to boulder and to get a technician to teach me how to use it and to buy some film and and i and i, and I needed some more money and so i you know, was really passionate about this project because I thought it would really revolutionize and completely disrupt the entire nut butter category. And, um, and no one, you know, had really been, and, and I was also like super nervous. I'm like, you know, why isn't anybody doing this? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so simple, right? <laughs> and so I was like really nervous about it too because at any moment someone could launch their own squeeze pack and I'd be like, you know, done. So I'm really nervous about it and I want to move really fast. And so, so I borrow $75,000 from my roommate's parents and I buy this squeeze pack machine. I have it sent out to Boulder. I put it like a, a down payment down on, uh, on my own spot in Boulder, but I'm still sharing it with, this time I find Bobo's Oat Bars and together, her and I share this kitchen together and we're like sharing employees and getting this thing going. And I launched the squeeze pack and it took me a year to get the machine in, to get it hardwired in, to understand, you know, how the air works and how the cam operates to, you know, fill the squeeze pack, seal the squeeze pack. Um, cut the squeeze pack with heat and pressure and blah, blah, blah. And it was crazy. And we finally create the squeeze pack. And I'm so excited. And I can't believe it. And, you know, I, I'm talking to this Whole Foods buyer locally about delivering it. And he's like, oh, yeah, bring it in. When it comes in, it'll be great. And I'm so excited. And, I, and, I, and I'm like, to me, it's this energy food. It's like a protein bar. And so I put it in these big trays, just like Cliff Bars and Lara Bars and whatever. And I put it in the energy bar section because it's where it belongs. And I put it right next to, like, some of my favorite energy bars. And then I'm just like so excited to see this thing take off because this is what, you know, I've needed because um, because, you know, the, the jars weren't really working. And uh, and then a few months go by and no one's buying them. And I'm just like devastated. And then and then I got a call from this buyer and he's like, hey, man, Justin, I, I you know, I know you worked really hard on these, but can you come pick up, pick up your boxes because they're not really moving. I'm going to try something else there instead. And, um, and it was a really, you know, it was a really great idea. I just, I just don't know, you know, if it's, if it's going to work. And I was bummed and I was just was frustrated and I couldn't understand it. But curiosity got the best of me again. And the passion got me to show up. I'm like, all right, why aren't people buying these? I don't get it. I think it's a great idea. So I literally would stand by on the, at the store, watch people shop the set. And, and I, people, everyone already knows this. But I didn't realize it, right? I had to learn it the hard way. Number one, when people go shopping, they're kind of in a rush. It's kind of a chore. No one really enjoys shopping unless they're a foodie and they want to discover new things. So people want to get in, they want to get out. If you're not in the list, on the list, you're not in the cart. And so people were going and buying what they always buy. And when they see something new, if they don't immediately understand it, they ignore it because they don't have time. And I, and I saw people walk right by and see, pick, even pick it up and be like, whoa, and then put it right back down, you know? And so I'm like, okay. I'm like, people don't know what this is. There, there's a squeeze pack where their bars are, and it's not a bar, and so they're just confused and they ignore it. And they're like, you know, and so it's honey peanut. Was this honey? Is it peanut? Is it what? Is this it says protein on? I don't get it. I'm ignoring it. So I'm like, all right, well, so maybe maybe what we should do is instead of putting this big tray put it in a little box and put the make the box the size of a jar and make it almost look like a jar and we'll put it right next to the jar right in and because i was already delivering jars to the store so let's just put it right next to the jars and just see what happens and maybe this layer of abstraction will be like you know resolved and the consumer will be like oh okay i i know what it is it's a squeeze pack of peanut butter right i mean it's right <laughs> next to the, the jars and um and it worked like it just almost immediately it worked and what was crazy 
was consumers knew what it was immediately and had to explain it, mm-hmm. why it was there and what it was. But what I didn't understand, which was really powerful, was for me, the whole reason why I created it was on-the-go portable protein, right? For whatever, right? Fueling, fueling your adventure, whatever the adventure is. Right. But that was only the third reason why people were buying it as they got to know and talk to people. The second reason why people were buying it was for portion control. You know, hey, you know, I can't buy a jar of almond butter without eating the whole jar. So to have a squeeze pack is great for me. You know, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Never thought of that, mm-hmm. you know. And the number one, one reason why people were buying it was because they'd always wanted to try an almond butter or, you know, a, a different type of peanut butter. But they were nervous that once they made that investment, bought a whole jar for like $10, that they may not like it. <laughs> and they made that big investment. But, but, but wait, oh, wait, here's a squeeze pack. It's only, it's around a dollar. Oh, let me try that. Oh, wow, that's really good. Oh, man, I'm going to go back and buy it. But I'm going to buy a jar now. because I And I really trust that brand, so I'm going to buy that brand. And it's a value size. And, I'm, and I really like almond butter. And what happened was we ended up creating an opportunity for a consumer to buy their own trial and trade up. Brilliant, right? I wish I had thought of it. And so with that move alone, our jar sales really started to increase and took off. And it created this really great system where um, the business was able to create a sustainable and profitable foundation. There have been times you've said that you went against the recommendations of your board of advisors when you went against the recommendations of um, people that you trust. And um, I'm just so curious about why you've done that, when you know how to trust your instincts and when you know how to entrust, how to trust your board of advisors. Um, I know a specific mm-hmm. example that you have talked about was your um, peanut butter cups. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that and, and so- how you know which, which gut to trust there? It's so funny. So, for instance, right? So here we are. Jars, jars are now taken off. The squeeze packs are, you know, slowly starting to like grow into more stores. And I think at this time with the squeeze packs, we were like niche national, right? Which means we're national with wild oats, whole foods, sprouts. You know, we have some regional success with natural grocers, maybe with Wegmans, and we're slowly like growing into some some accounts. But there's a ton of opportunity with just the squeeze packs alone. And the biggest challenge the entrepreneur has is, <laughs> is, is focus and discipline. Focus. What's working? Keep in the discipline to keep doing it, right? Boring. <laughs> right? We just want to keep creating things because that's what's fun. You know, yeah. we don't, we don't want to, you know, sit down and focus and be disciplined on doing the same thing over and over. We want to keep creating. And so... So the squeeze packs are slowly and, and surely get, gaining momentum. And I come to my board and I'm like, all right, I've got a great idea. I want to do, you know, it's like, you know, here, here's, here's the genesis of the idea. You know, I finish a demo. I'm at a Whole Foods. I go to the salad bar. I get a salad, but I need something sweet. I go to the chocolate set and all I see are chocolate bars. What if we did a 100% organic peanut butter cup? You know, and I'm expecting like this, oh, standing ovation. <laughs> oh, Justin, what a great idea. Bravo, bravo, right? And instead people are like, dude, what are you doing? Like, we've got this right in front of us. It's working. Like, keep adding, just keep doing this. Just keep doing this. And I'm like, yeah, no. I'm like, I get it. But the squeeze pack still is, you know, it's this unfamiliar territory. No one's ever seen it before. We literally have to pioneer a new subset of a category. But 
one of the best-selling candy items is a peanut butter cup, and you can't get one at a Whole Foods or a natural food store. And I think that'd be a great way to bring more consumers into our franchise. And so, you know, I, I just really want to, you know, do one. And the, and the board was like, okay, well, I tell you what, fine. If you can figure it out, like, let's have a conversation. And so then, so then, you know, a few months go by and I know I start like taking peanut butter and I'm making my own filling and I'm, I take chocolate, I double boil it. I put it in a ice cube tray and you paint it in, you put it in the freezer and you fill in the, put in the filling with the sugar and the cocoa butter and whatever and the vanilla. And then you put, paint the chocolate back on top and you put it in the, in the freezer again, you pop out the peanut butter cups and they taste amazing. I'm like, all right, now I gotta find someone to make these. And I call up all these chocolatiers. Nobody makes peanut butter cups anymore, right? Why would you? Like, why would you ever go against, you know, such a big, great company that does great, you know, products? And so, um, so nobody wants to make them. And then if someone who finally says, okay, I could probably make this for you. Okay, you're like, all right, so we're gonna start off really small, you know, cause I don't have any stores mm-hmm. and I wanna do it 100% organic. And they're like, Pfft, <laughs> well, I don't have time, you know. We can't start small because to, to turn on my machine, it cranks out 100,000 units, right? <laughs> and organic, like I, they're finicky, the, the supply is challenging, you know. So it took me a year to find this small mom-and-pa operator who had a you know single-shot chocolate depositor that could make a cup with molds they hadn't used in like, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years. And they took it out of retirement and we started to like make cups and we got it and then... And, you know, it got some tests going and I showed my board. And then meanwhile, they had run some, we'd run some data to see how, you know, how big the category is. And it's like, look, it's not, it's, there's no chocolate category. And, you know, and, and the long story short, I just went against their advice. And I'm like, you know what? You got to trust your gut sometimes. And this is something that's really important to me. And I think it would really be fun to do. And so we launched the uh, peanut butter cup. And for me, the world doesn't need more candy it needs better candy and if we're going to make a candy product it has to be defensible you know it has to stand for something that's more than just you know a better for you version of it's got to be 100 percent organic with conflict-free ingredients with way less sugar than what's out there but it's got to taste amazing and so when we launched the product i just thought it'd be this really nice whole foods you know natural kind of product opportunity and what was fascinating is it grew way outside of that. And not only did it do really well in all of the natural food stores, but it started to do really well in more traditional food stores and in coffee shops and in grab-and-go places. And then the peanut butter cup kind of became, you know, the, this, you know, point of entry into the Justin's franchise. And so now we had this nut butter part of our company and we had this chocolate part of our company and both were growing really well. And... Um, and it gave us now permission to grow outside of just being, you know, peanut butter company and nut butter company. It gave us permission to maybe become something more, which is really exciting. You said that the Whole Foods Market local producer loan program was instrumental for the business. Was that around this time? Was this before? <laughs> totally. And you were one of the first people to benefit from that program. Yeah, it, yeah, it was really, to Whole Foods credit, they, um, you know, they pioneered a lot of things in the natural food industry. And... Uh, and I owe them a debt of gratitude, and, and and also you know Natural Grocers and Sprouts and a lot of other companies, and you know of course King Supers, but I can't name everyone. But <laughs> so, but Whole Foods did a really good job because they they really understood the need that if they want to differentiate in the marketplace, they have to really find the small local artisan manufacturers, bring them in, and a lot of times these these artisan manufacturers 
once they get a Whole Foods purchase order, they can't keep up, right? And and so the, these, these local entrepreneurs can't create products or go out of business, then everyone loses. So Whole Foods is like, well, let's create a loan program so we can help these entrepreneurs develop scale in their businesses. And then we can offer our consumers, you know, these great products. And so for me, it was this, this like, double whammy of opportunity. Number one, I got money, right, which I needed at a very low interest loan that we could use for equipment to continue to grow our manufacturing side to service a lot of our, you know, customers, including Whole Foods. The second thing was, was it gave me <laughs> a story, right? And the story was, I walk into a Whole Foods in, you name it, Texas, New Jersey, California, Minnesota, somewhere where you're not local. And when you're local, like everyone wants to help you because it's really fun to support the local products. And I love that. <laughs> but when you go outside of your local environment, you're no longer local anymore. And you got to compete against the people who are local. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd go to a Whole Foods where I wasn't local. And they'd say, you know what? Thanks, Justin. But we, we got enough peanut butters on our aisle. We don't need any more almond butters or peanut butters. We're, we're good. And they'd be like, and like kind of like my, you know, my... My ace, right, was, hey, look, I, I understand, but, you know, I'm, I'm part of the, the Whole Foods local loan recipient program. Do you know what that is? And they're like, I heard about that. It's kind of new. Huh? I'm like, yeah, it's been great. And Whole Foods gives these loans to the young entrepreneurs to help grow their business so they can, you know, scale and grow within, with Whole Foods and, you know, and with other customers. But I tell you what, if I don't grow my sales, I might default on my loan. And if I default on my loan, I mean, that's not going to be good for Whole Foods. <laughs> and it's kind of true, right? I mean, who knows? But probably true. Definitely true. <laughs> and so, and, you know, and then, you know, that, that some buyer may be like, oh, my goodness, you're right. Okay, well, let, let, we'll, we'll test it out and see how it does. And someone else may laugh and be like, okay, okay, I like you. I like you. We'll, we'll give you a shot, you know. But at the end of the day... You have to do, you have to perform well in the stores, right? Yeah. And what I've learned about this food industry, which is really fascinating, is you have 12 months, right? And a lot of the times, the buyers at a lot of these chains and stores, a lot of times they don't know. A lot of times they really do have their finger on the pulse on this is the future. These are the categories we're going to invest in with these brands. And a lot of times they don't. Right, because you can't know everything about every subset of nutritional needs that are coming through your store all day long. So, so, and we're the we're the dreamer of dreams, right? We're the Willy Wonkas of our generation. <laughs> and you walk in, you meet a grocery buyer, and you say, "Hey, look, let me tell you the future. The future is consumers are going to demand not only more varieties and flavors of nut butters, but they're going to want them in squeeze packs. And they're going to travel with them, and they're going to want to like try something new with a squeeze pack like this. And I guarantee you." That if we put these products in your stores, they're going to do well because that's the future. And the buyer goes, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I can see that. You have 12 months to prove me wrong. <laughs> you know, like, and so. The clock you, starts now. Yeah, 12 <laughs> months to prove it. And, uh, and sometimes it works. And sometimes with a lot of companies, it doesn't. Because the trend is too soon or, you know, that store isn't, that geographical area isn't ready for that trend or whatever is happening. And you really have 12 months to prove that your products are going to turn. And if they don't, then they put something else there. Because at the end of the day, these stores are there to service their customers and to make money. Or These are all businesses. They all need to make money. And it's really fun. You clearly named Justin's after yourself. I'm curious about when that is a huge asset and when that really helps the business and when it can be a bit of a challenge sometimes. What's interesting about 
naming a company after yourself, which was and kind it started of an with accident. your roommates, yeah, right? Yeah, they named accident. the company but, after I mean, you. <laughs> yeah, but I could have easily been like, well, I'm not naming after myself because that's a terrible name, you know? Like, I was like, oh, it's kind of fun, you know? It's and what it does, which I didn't realize, which is really powerful, is it gave the brand an instant personality. You know, it wasn't like we had to figure out, okay, well, what is the what is the brand personality, and how can we, you know, really give it all these attributes to to make people really kind of connect to the brand. It was like, well, the brand is is me, and so the things that I'm really passionate about kind of morphed into the brand values and and a lot of the mission and vision and purpose of the brand were the things that are really important to me. Mm-hmm. So it immediately gave the the brand a voice. It gave it a personality, and it gave it a kind of this culture you know, around around how I live my life, which makes it really easy to define, really easy to do, and really fun. Because you create an environment that you really care about, you know? Uh, so that's the fun part about it. The challenging part about it is the brand kind of becomes the idealized version of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of pressure on you. Yeah, well, I, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have bad days anymore, right? I'm not allowed. You know, but But the reality is like, the brand becomes bigger than who you are and it becomes better than than who you are and it's really hard sometimes to live up to uh, the expectations that someone may have when they meet you or someone may have when they experience your brand you know and and what's really hard is the the brand i take very personal and it comes back to like likeness right i want everyone to like me and to like the brand and to like the products and it's all interrelated and when someone doesn't it kind of hurts my feelings <laughs> In 2016, uh, Justin's became a part of Hormel Foods. What's been the impact of that type of expansion on the business? Yeah, you know, the Hormel Foods piece has been really interesting, and it's been a really fun chapter. What's fascinating, let me give you just a little bit of backstory. Yeah. What's fascinating is, you know, when, as soon as I brought on investors, I made a conscious decision that at some point I have to pay investors back, right? That's how it works. And I had all this, I, I call it paranoia. Paranoia around, yeah, I, I couldn't patent the squeeze pack. I couldn't protect trade secret, whatever. I couldn't protect peanut butter, almond butter. I put the two together and anyone can do it. And so I had this paranoia that if I don't move fast, someone else will and they'll beat me. And they beat me to market. How many squeeze packs does a grocery store really need of peanut butter, almond butter? Probably not many. <laughs> so I better move fast. And so moving fast really motivated me to bring on investors, to hire people who are way smarter than me, who had a lot more experience than me to help me grow the business, accelerate the growth of the business, to um, to you know give away a lot of samples, to get people to try it, to do lots of demos, which all cost money, all in the effort of getting out in the market faster than somebody else, right? And so... Once you bring on lots of investors, you have to pay people back at some point, right? It's just one of those, you know, rules of life, which are great. And so there's, there's a lot of different ways you can pay people back. You can, if you have a profitable company, you can take out bank debt. If you have um, uh, also a profitable company, highly profitable, you can do maybe an ESOP or some type of um, opportunity to, to, you know, to put it back into the people. Mm-hmm. You can go public. Or you can trade out one investor for another investor, and you know, and and as we were growing, you know, we weren't very profitable because we kept investing back in the business, and so I traded out my first angel investors for a larger investor, kind of a more sophisticated investor, and kept growing the business, and then then we got to such a large scale, where 
we still weren't profitable enough to do ESOPs, to do um, bank debt, and I didn't really, it was too complicated to go pro- public, and plus we were still kind of small. And, and there was a group that, that contacted me years before, and they had they, they had, they had Skippy in their portfolio, and they really loved what we were doing called Hormel Foods, and they wanted to meet with me, and I was like, no way. And they're like, you know, like, like, why? And I'm like, because you guys, you know, you're, you're just going to change who we are, and you're going to, you you're, you're probably would buy us, and you probably would move us somewhere else. And, you know, and I had to lay everybody off and you'd, you know, dilute our values and dilute our products. And that's not why I built this. I didn't build this to, to just sell the company and move away. I built this to really stay involved and create something special that can, you know, change people's lives and change our food industry and change our natural environment and do good in the world. It's like, no thanks. And then we kept growing and they kept watching us. And then they reached back out again and said, tell you what, can, can we just like talk about this? And I was like, yeah, we can talk. That's fine. And so it came to Boulder and we had a conversation. And before I said anything, they said, look, you know, we love what you're doing. We love the natural food industry. We want to learn more. We want to get more involved. And, and we don't want to change anything. In fact, we want to accelerate and add water to what you're doing. Because we really feel that the future of food is in sustainably sourced, you know, organic, um, really mission-driven, purpose-driven organizations. And we can't become that overnight, so we want to learn and we want to c- continue to grow your story. And by the way, maybe you've heard of Skippy Peanut Butter that, that we have in our portfolio. So we are really experts in food safety and food quality and transportation and manufacturing and all the back-end things, which if I can tell, you probably are struggling with because it's really hard to scale in uh, the nut butter industry. And we were ch- really challenged with that. Right? How can an artisan company, artisan food company, where every time you have the product tastes a little bit different because the nuts are maybe grown differently or from a different region or roasted a little differently or manufactured a little differently, sell to someone like Target or Walmart or Kroger when a consumer goes in and they expect a consistent experience every time they buy the product. It wants to look the same, taste the same, smell the same. It's really hard to do that. It can be done, but it's really hard to do it. And also to make sure the product is safe. You know, we have this, I'd say it's it's ignorance that we have all these food products out there and we just trust that these companies are doing the right thing, right? The government is checking in once in a while, but no one's really like, you know, making sure that day in and day out you're making safe food products. Anyway, so Hormel gets involved and we had this conversation and then, you know, we worked out an opportunity where it could be a win-win, where I can pay back my investors, right? And I can continue to run an organization with the right leadership, both internal and external, that's a subsidiary of a larger company, that's mission-driven, that focuses on you know, the values of our people and the planet and, the, and our food systems, and really can you know, hopefully be a beacon of, of opportunity for other food companies that you know, join larger food companies. And the way we look at it is you know, we didn't sell out. You know, Hormel bought in to what we're doing. And I learned a lot of that, you know, phraseology from Annie's and what they've done with General Mills. And so it's been really fun to kind of see that grow. But at the end of the day, it comes down really to one thing, growth, right? And if we continue to grow and consumers continue to show up for natural, organic, sustainable, you know, sustainably sourced food products, then we'll always have a place in that ecosystem because that's what we're going to do. We can, we're going to continue to do better and evolve. But if consumers stop demanding those products or we get outcompeted by a nut butter company that's more organic or more sustainable, then that's awesome because they deserve to win. But as long as we grow and we continue to know the future of where we think food is, 
we'll be fine. But if we don't grow, they have every right to say, hey, Justin, you know what? Your team, you guys, <laughs> we don't think you know what you're doing anymore. So, you know, we got it from here, right? And that can happen. And you know what? With any type of business, that can happen. Whether you're private, public, or part of a larger company, and I'm okay with that. And as long as we continue to grow and do good, you know, we're going to be in Boulder and I'm going to be highly involved. You've talked a lot about the importance of doing good. Can you tell us a little bit about your corporate social responsibility programs and why that's such a huge piece of the company, what that looks like, and how you support and um, sustain that? Yeah, you know, I think that the way our industry really has boiled it down is in the triple bottom line, right? People, planet, profits, right? And so number one, we have to be a business first and foremost. We have to make money and generate income. But that doesn't have to be the end-all be-all, right? And so we focus a lot on, you know, the planet. And by the planet, it's a lot, it's a lot, a lot to do with sourcing. We make sure we source products that are made um, fairly by people who are being paid living wages um, in environments that are, you know, ethical and ingredients that are as organic as we can source. How challenging is that piece of it? Sometimes it's impossible and you have to wait until that organic industry develops or, um, or Especially be, when you're talking about scale and you're talking about growing, is that... And price. Mm-hmm. You know, and price is based on availability and consumers only willing to pay so much for, for a product. Or if you charge it, you could, you know, you could outprice your, your consumer, your base of where you want to grow. And so, you know, our motto has always been about not perfection, but progress. So let's create a product that's really good, maybe not perfect, but really good. And we'll source everything as organic as we can. And with the hopes of as the industry grows and everything keeps evolving that, you know, and prices come down because and demand goes up and supply catches up, that we can continue to make our products better and chip away at, you know, more organic ingredients as we grow as an organization, which is exactly what we've been doing, right? And so... Have you seen that evolution of any particular ingredients that you've used or oh, over the past 15 yeah, years? It's, it's been it great. It used to be so, really hard and now it's so a lot instance, easier. For instance, honey was really hard to source organic. Hmm. You know, like, you know, how do you tell a bee where to collect right. its pollen from, right? <laughs> so, but, you know, businesses have gotten smarter. They've isolated bee colonies and they've, you know, there's certain islands you can buy honey from. And so now all of our honey is certified organic. Mm-hmm. We thought that was really important, especially with a lot of the mission we have around, you know, bees and pollinators. All of our maple is now organic. You know, secondary ingredients, all of our, the sugars that we use are organic. And because, you know, again, it's, it's de- being defensible on the things that you care about. And, you know, and so we're, so we're doing all the things that we can really do now. And we're looking at what we can do in the future. And so that has a big impact on our planet. And then we do a lot of work around um, pollinators. We do a lot of education. We support, you know, local pollinator, you know, growing gardens where we, you know, help and we volunteer our time to grow these great, like, pollinator habitats that are year-round for, for bees. And then we do a lot of regional stuff through Colorado, through CPAN, which is doing a lot of education to make sure that we understand, you know, why pollinators are important and how we can help pollinators. And then from a, then from a national perspective, we work with Xerces to make sure that, you know, our almond growers understand the importance of hedgerows and that almond is a one-year, you know, f- kind of like three-week bloom period. And then there's, you know, then you don't need bees anymore, but bees are still there year-round. They're native bees. Let's support those bees and let's create pollinating plants that pollinate all year round versus just for one event. And and so we do a lot of work there. And then we do a lot of work around hunger relief. Um, there's an organization called Conscious Alliance that works um, primarily in Pine Ridge Native American Reservation in South Dakota. 
And we felt it was really important to, um, to not only help communities that are outside of, you know, our country, but also kind of in our backyard. And, you know, and this community is, um, is one of the poorest in the country. And it's, you know, you can drive there from Boulder, like, you know, four hours. And it was really important to kind of help that community not only with, with their food bank, but also a backpack program, which a lot of kids there will go hungry over the weekend when they're not in school. So how can we get kids to stay in school, to eat on the weekends, and to hopefully get a better education, go to college, come back and help their community? And so we thought it was really important and fun to work with this organization, not only you know build gardens and help these, get these kids outside, but it was get them to eat, eat, eat well, and understand the foods they eat well are really important, and keep them in school. And so we do a backpack program with Conscious Alliance. We do a lot of work um, also with just Wait, locally in our community. What does the backpack mean? The backpack program is just, you know, foods you can take home in your backpack. Gotcha. You know, because you're going to school with your backpack, and we want you so to— So they have healthy food all weekend. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 the, and the, the goal is, too, that the only way that you get the food is if you come to school, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of these kids, it's the highest teen suicide rate in the country— um, you know, we got to get kids to finish high school to hopefully continue and get a higher education and to just really have great role models and, and to love life and to continue to learn and then to give back and be a part of their community, you know, and carry on the language and the traditions. And, uh, and this organization is doing a really great job helping to, to do that. And, you know, and, and that's important to us because, you know, we want to, you know, Boulder's, uh, Boulder has its issues, but it's a great community. It doesn't need a lot more help than it's already getting. So where can we go outside of Boulder that's still, you know, maybe not getting as much its fair share of help, mm-hmm. right? And then we also work with local food banks and we work with a lot of other organizations uh, because it's the right thing to do. In fact, the hardest thing to do when you have a company that really cares a lot is like saying no, right? It's really hard to do. And we don't say no very often, <laughs> but um, but we have to focus on the things that um, we think we can go deep with and really make a difference. Now, personally, you're pretty involved with entrepreneurs in Boulder. I can imagine that some of that is inspired by the help that you got and the motivation that you got. But I'm curious about um, why you are so involved and why it's so important to you to make sure that you are mentoring the next up-and-comers. Yeah, you know, number one, you nailed it. You know, I got a ton of help, and we have to pay it forward. The only way we're going to get out of this ecological crisis is by developing companies that do good and with entrepreneurs and founders that that care. And you know, and I got a ton of help and so I'm paying it forward for the next generation to hopefully create an ecosystem around conscious capitalism to to fix this, you know, environment we're in. And I, I and I have a lot of faith in the people that I meet with because there a lot of them are doing really great things. And then the other reason, two other reasons, one it's the right thing to do, right? You got to help people. Right. And, I'll, and it just keeps coming around. And as my company continues, continues to scale and grow, I need help. Right. And then lastly, it just keeps me involved in the, this, this ecosystem. And it's, it's really fun to hear about, you know, what entrepreneurs are working on and what challenges they have and, you know, and where their, you know, growing pains are because I can, you know, probably help and be involved. And it's just really interesting and fun. And, uh, and I really appreciate, you know, just being there for other people. 
So you're an entrepreneur, you're also a dad. Um, and I know that you formulated your squeeze packs for people on the go, but I can't help but notice in the parenting community that you see an awful lot of them too. <laughs> it's a pretty convenient product for families as a whole. I'm curious about how much um, having kids now in your family inspire some of the work that you're doing and the choices that you're making. Yeah, you know, uh, having kids is really kind of giving me a, a great deal of appreciation for what we feed them. And, uh, and so I'd say a lot of the snacks that we're going to be developing into the future are going to be around, you know, what's snackable and appropriate for not only us, but for kids, right? And the one thing I, I, that's really hard for me to do, like, let's say a toddler line or a baby line is eventually like <laughs> your core consumer ages out of, <laughs> you know, your products and you've got to right. start over. So I want to create products that are appropriate for kids and adults, Right, because we all have a kid snacking side to us, yeah. And and that's what the whole brand has really been about for me. And and so it's the idea is, what do I want, and what do I want to give my kids? Well, I want things that are high in, in vegetarian-based protein, that are low in sugar, and that are simple in ingredients that make sense, that make me feel good, and that can do good. And I think if we can continue that formula, I think it's a winning one. And I think the future for us is not only around. You know, I'd say um, healthy for you snacks, and but it's also around packaging. When I look in the mirror and I look at the amount of packaging waste that a company like ours produces, it really makes me wonder and be curious. And is there and how is there a better way to do this? And that's really a lot of the questions that we ask today in the office is how can we do this better from a packaging perspective? And we're not alone. A lot of other natural food companies are like, all right, this is great. We have these sustainable organic food ingredients in this throwaway, very wasteful package. So how do we fix that? And I think that that's going to be really the next frontier, which hopefully we're a big part of and excited to tackle. What does the future look like for Justin's and for you? What does the future look like? You know, I think that Justin's is going to continue to um, to grow. And I think that we have to grow outside of the nut butter space. Because in all fairness, you know, grocery stores need to carry other brands. You know, you just can't, you can't have a whole section of just Justin's, right? <laughs> so, and, and I think that's great because I love other brands too. And so I think the idea is, you know, where does Justin's have permission to play? And I really see the brand as a vegetarian-based protein company, right? And not like protein, like, you know, muscle junkie protein, but just sustainable energy protein, which is kind of how I see me living my life. So I see really the brand evolving into nut nutrition, nut-based protein, and then plant-based protein. As far as me personally, I I don't know. I want to hold on to this to this moment for as long as I can, right? And and I love the idea that I can, um, you know, be a force of good in a larger company, still help young companies, you know, be a great husband, a great father, um, hopefully, you know, a good business leader and a good business mentor to the people I work with. Hopefully, you know, a great leader in my own organization and also stay extremely active you know with my community and with myself and to pursue the things that make me happy because if i feel like that if i'm happy then i can share more happiness and enthusiasm which is you know being healthy and and feeling good and doing a lot of you know fun activities outside that push me physically and mentally so i hope to like you know do some fun big epic trips but also find balance to be with my family because 
you know, they they need me. And, and if I want them to really carry on the tradition of doing good and being good, you got to teach that hands-on. And also being there for the company and the community and finding a really great balance is my, like, word for, <laughs> for myself for the future is balance. Yeah. And I hope I can look back in 10 years or 20 years or 5 years or 10 minutes <laughs> and be like, yeah, you know what? You really were balanced and you were able to find time to do everything really well. Not perfect because you can't do it all perfectly, but but you're making progress along the way. You've talked about it being important to be a voice in the food space. Um, and I'm curious about how you see that role and responsibility. I don't really know how to answer that. I haven't been asked that question ever before. That's a good one. So I think that, you know, I don't know. I think that there's no one way to do anything. There's lots of ways to do it. And I think that it's powerful to hear all of them. And I think that it's really important to hear my voice because this is the way that I've done it. Right, wrong, good, bad, it's the way that I've done it. And if there's something you can learn from it or if there's something that I can you know, help share, then I think that it's really powerful to hear it. And then I think that what's really fun about our industry is it is very collaborative and it is very mission-driven and purposeful around you know, the, the intention of the ingredients we use and the health and wellness we want to promote. And what's fun is when you put a lot of those voices together, you can amplify a message, which I think is really going to be powerful and fun. And what's really neat is we have such a collaborative natural foods community. And and as some companies, you know, become part of larger food companies, that, that collaboration continues, which will hopefully break down a lot of walls as the natural food companies mature and we can maybe tackle some larger issues together instead of separately. It's much more powerful. That'd be super fun. <laughs> you got into this because you are an active guy living in Boulder, looking for protein to power yourself. I'm so curious about what your routine looks like these days. Obviously, life has changed a little bit <laughs> since you were since you landed in Boulder. Um, but how are you still? What does your active routine and active lifestyle look like now? Yeah, it's almost embarrassing because it's kind of like you know this Boulder echo chamber. Like it's. You know, it's like what it's like what a lot of people do. So I don't feel that special. But then when I travel outside of Boulder, I'm like, oh, am I the only person who does this? You know, like, <laughs> but no, you know, I get up at like five o'clock, and and I exercise first thing, right? And for a lot of reasons. Number one, someone very powerful to me said, if something's really important, he's like, you get it done early because you can always choose when your day begins. You can never choose when it ends. So if something's important to you, get it done first thing. So for me, it's exercise. Because when I exercise, I you know I kickstart my metabolism, I kickstart my brain, and I get all this energy out that for the rest of the day makes me feel centered and, and on what I need to work on, which you know exercise is done. So I can focus on everything else that I need to work on. And so I get up at five. If it's the winter time, I'll go to the gym. If it's not if it's you know summer or spring, I go skiing a lot. So I go backcountry skiing where we'll you know go hike somewhere and ski a pitch that looks really interesting. And um, if it's a summer, I go mountain biking or on long um, uh, road rides on you know these big kind of dirt mountain roads that are super fun. Or I go trail running with friends. And um, and then you know I'll basically get to the office and um, work for as long as I can. Most of my my meetings these days are um, really checking in with people at the office and you know having a lunch or a meeting with an entrepreneur or a foundation that needs a little bit of guidance and then you know I want to be home by 
four or five o'clock because I want to spend time with my kids and I want to be there to help cook dinner and help clean and help do laundry and mm-hmm. and do all the things that are important to keep a really successful, you know, I think um, family life. And then, um, and then on weekends, I really try to, to, to just cater it exactly to the family, you know. But really, for me, it's about, and then, then of course, every night before I go to bed, um, I'm, I have one of three books that I'm constantly juggling. <laughs> and it's usually something that's like, you know, super like funny or, or fantasy oriented, like some science fiction that's like way out there and crazy. <laughs> and then the other books, usually some historical nonfiction type of book around, you know, usually it's around um, historical figures or entrepreneurs I find fascinating. And then the third book's usually like a business or like a wellness book mm-hmm. to kind of continue to learn and evolve my diet and my thinking. And, um, and then I fall asleep usually reading a book every night. And, it's, and so, you know, I'm usually in bed by, I'm horizontal by like 9.30, sleeping <laughs> by 10, and then, you know, rinse and repeat. What gets you excited in the morning? Coffee. this could be the answer to the next question but what keeps you up at night what keeps me up at night man so much keeps me up at night you know but um i think it's just what's really fascinating about being a parent is i looked at my parents when i was my kid's age you know five six seven eight and and uh and i thought my parents knew it all and I thought that they knew exactly like what they were doing and why they were doing it and, and that they had answers and, and to everything and, uh, and that they were doing it the right way. And then I realized that, you know, we have no idea what we're doing. We think we know what we're doing, but really we're like making this up as we go and doing the best that we can. <laughs> it might be a general plan, but. <laughs> and, and I just like, I just hope I'm being the best that I can. And, you know, I'm, I'm helping coach my kids through um, some interesting times in their lives and uh, and that keeps me up because I just want to make sure that I'm I'm doing the best that I can. But what gets me going in the morning, honestly, is the fact that every day is completely different. I've you know I have no idea what the day is going to bring, and it's really exciting to to get out and to hopefully learn something new, or to be inspired by someone, or to inspire someone. And that gets me really excited. What advice would you give your twenty year old self? What advice would I give my twenty year old self? Um. I don't know. I think that the best advice, which you know is very cliche, is um, don't rush to the destination. You know, enjoy the journey. And I think as entrepreneurs, we get so focused on the success aspect of it that a lot of the the real defining moments and joy of owning a company or being an entrepreneur are in the the really tough moments. Right, that you just you know, and, and not, I'm not saying enjoy all the moments, but I guess it's it's you know don't don't rush the process, Justin. Settle down, you know everything will happen when it's ready to happen, and, in, and enjoy the good and enjoy the bad, and know that you know if you keep if, if you work really hard and you're patient, positive, and persistence, that everything will always you know work its way out, and I think that. The most important thing for any entrepreneur, any human being really, is, is to be positive. And it's amazing because I, I meet all these young entrepreneurs. Usually it's see you like at business classes or something. And they're all like, you know, hey, what was your favorite business book? Because I'm really curious what inspired you to, to do this and not that from a business perspective. And I'm like, look, man, like if you really want to like make this work, I wouldn't be focusing on business books. I'd be working on self-help books, mm-hmm. right? Because really it's all about 
you know, these, again, it's cliche, but it's so powerful and important, you know, that law of attraction, mm -hmm. right? You, what you focus on is what you get. Mm -hmm. If you focus on positive, good things, you're going to get positive, good things. You know, it's visualizing where you want to be and what you want to be and, and creating the, the feelings in, in, your, in your mind. And, and those feelings in your minds create this, this image, and that image is kind of what you follow. Olympic athletes do it. Professional athletes do it. You know, business coaches teach it, and yet we don't do it every day. And so it's things like around being positive and that I think are really important because it, it comes down to, believe it or not, being more likable. Because people want to be around people who are happy and positive mm -hmm. and not just jerks, you know? You can still be successful being a jerk, but you got to be like really smart <laughs> for, and really visionary for people to want to follow someone who, you know, may not be the nicest person in the world. Well, you're quite the contrary. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> I hope. Uh, hey, thank you. That was super fun. I really enjoyed it. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks.